I think one of the, the failures of cybersecurity leadership today is if we really do believe people are the problem, we're making people the problem. If we believe instead that people were the solution, we're creating a much different environment and we'd have the possibility of success. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I sit down with George Finney, CISO of Southern Methodist University. George and I talk about how cybersecurity is a team sport, its dependence on openness and collaboration, and look at how your company culture can actually have a direct impact on the likelihood of a future breach. You've heard that culture eats strategy for breakfast, but can it also take a bite out of security? How do you encourage openness and sharing in a field that deals with attack, defense, hunt and response? And could the root of this mindset be that the problem exists between the keyboard and the chair. Good morning, George. If you would, for the uninitiated, tell us about yourself. Howdy, folks. I'm George Finney. I'm the Chief Security Officer for Southern Methodist University here in Dallas, Texas. I've been with SMU probably 17 years now, so I, I think actually more than half of my career, which is crazy to think about. I've gotten my law degree from SMU and, you know, it, it, it's interesting. My, my career journey has, you know, kind of evolved and I've kind of along the way been able to see the evolution of cybersecurity, you know, all at the same place, which is, which is really cool. So I've written a couple of books about cybersecurity um, and uh, yeah, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Yeah. Thank you for the intro. You know, getting a law degree, getting your Doctorate of Jurisprudence. What is that? What do you think that has given you in terms of perspective on on security? Is there a after going through and you know memorizing all the things that you had to? How did that change your thinking, if at all? Well, first, I, I will, let me say I don't recommend it. I did the evening law uh, uh, program, that which is four years of uh, going to school four nights a week, reading about a thousand pages of of really dry, you know, legal case material. So it's a real challenge. And I, I think part of that challenge, at least for me, is just, you know, in a way, just knowing, you know, that I'm capable of a level of effort that I never thought that I was capable of before. So, you know, I, I mean, being a full-time employee, you know, being on call 24 by 7 to to fix, you know, issues on top of an incredible workload for for school, they don't they don't let you take a part-time load because the legal industry wants you to be done in, in four or five years. So big challenge. But I would say, you know, once you start reading that much every week, I think you start to become more efficient and you, you start to, to, to think more critically in, in, in a way because you have to, and you pick out the, the, the big picture. And I think you know why you're doing things more. Because, you know, you, you need to focus on, on specifically what's relevant. And to me, you know, gosh, what I got out of it was curiosity, understanding, you know, is, is one thing, but, you know, wanting to know more 
wanting to explore things you've never seen before. That I, th- I think was the, the big opportunity that I got out of law school is, is just, I don't know, learning more about myself and kind of exploring that through the law and what I'm, what I'm most interested in and where my passions are. So the benefits of the law degree for you weren't necessarily the degree itself. It was the skill development and maybe some additional mental precision, not necessarily the uh, being barred uh, or, uh, or, or receiving the degree. Is that, is that mostly accurate? You no, know, I mean, I understand that uh, most people don't go to law school for, uh, for self-improvement reasons. <laughs> right, right. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, and I, I don't want to downplay the value of a law degree, you know, in, in general for those other things. I mean, I, I think there is a understanding the, the complexities of, you know, uh, regulations or understanding, you know, contracts and how contract negotiation works and how different uh, uh, parts of that, you know, r- relate back to uh, interpretation. I think where that's valuable for, for cybersecurity is just connecting, uh, you know, the, all of the regulations, compliance, contracts back to the technology aspects of cybersecurity. Yeah. I, I think for me, you know, I, again, I, I actually didn't start out law school to go into cybersecurity. I, th- I thought I was going to be a patent. Long story short, um, you know, I, I stayed in, you know, technology and, you know, kind of applied, you know, all of my experience, whether it's you know, at the time, you know, uh, uh, corporate law, Sarbanes-Oxley was, was, was a big deal. And, uh, you know, I studied that, that in a lot of detail. So I think more globally understanding the business was a big benefit. And, you know, not seeing the business just from a technology lens, knowing all of the other things that, that boards or executives are concerned about really kind of helped mature my own view of cybersecurity in, in a way. And I think as like I kind of alluded to earlier, as cybersecurity has matured, as the role of CISO has matured, you know, a lot of other folks are going back and getting their MBAs, for example. Right. And MBAs are, are awesome. And I, I think, you know, if, if you can stand the commitment of a, of a four-year program, I think the JD is, 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 you know, just that taking that to the next level and, and getting down way into the weeds and a lot of other things that, that you wouldn't have, have gotten exposed to otherwise. Absolutely. And, and where I was kind of going with that, I found I've had several lawyers tell me or several people that say, look, uh, if you were a, let's say, well-trained in information security, not even necessarily a CISO and had a law degree, that there's almost infinite work for you. And, and this goes beyond, you know, you mentioned understanding contract and contract law, which is extremely important. And what's the ramification of a contract as it relates to security between two parties? And, and how do we manage that? Indemnification in contracts is huge. Uh, so you'll often see something even in contracts where you're buying $100,000 worth of a service, but somebody wants a million dollars worth of, worth of indemnification and these sorts of things. Um, so it's, it's a very complex thing. And I, I find it fascinating that you went, after knowing you just a little while, I'm, I am not surprised that you would want to go and sort of meet this challenge of getting additional education that does not surprise me uh what is interesting is is the union between being a an educator an author a ciso and and then the lens of the law or going to law school i'm just fascinated by that i i frequently have people reach out to me and in fact i just had for some reason linkedin has become this sort of conduit and many of the questions are exactly around getting additional education and sort of the value that you get from it and so 
that's why I wanted to pick your brain on it. And and actually, I didn't know that you had gone to law school until just you said it earlier. So that's why I, I kind of <laughs> pushed you into the, in the line of questioning. And it wasn't meant to be tricky. I think it's just fascinating. So, and and I'm sure it's extremely valuable. My my last point is that for those that have been breached, well, that are a part of a security team and and part of the the larger events that occur, you will be uh, very quickly educated, both from internal and outside counsel. All sorts of fun things, like well, ultimately how to be deposed. <laughs> yes. And and more importantly, or, or first e-discovery, which is interesting. So there's this whole, like, there could almost be, and maybe this is something we do on the side or talk about later, is there's kind of the do's and don'ts of all of that. Totally. That I got to learn myself. So I don't know, that I think is incredibly valuable for a CISO. What are your thoughts on that? I think having a law degree, having that background is incredibly valuable. And like you said, there, there are a ton of opportunities with outside counsel who are working with folks who have been breached to make sure that they're, you know, crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. I, I, I think the challenge with that, for me, my, my passion is, is really, you know, prevention and, and being proactive rather than reactive. Um, so that, that's, that's always the challenge is, you know, I think you can go down that rabbit hole and become the expert on e-discovery, but are you making a difference? And are your clients listening to you? Are your uh, you know folks you know responding to the advice you're giving them? That's, that's actually the reason, the genesis of why I went to law school was actually more uh, you know I'd with I'd been with a couple of startups, was really passionate about open source software and and you know kind of wanted to explore you know the legal ramifications of that, but both you know startups failed for different reasons and the, those those corporate formation issues, why did people not do certain things or do other things? There are so many aspects of, of, of the business that I think are really interesting. And, it, you know, again, I think getting out in front of those and doing things the, the right way instead of making mistakes uh, along the way, I, I think, you know, that background in law can, can really help guide you in the right direction. And, and for me, I think one of the outcomes has been my attorneys, uh, you know, look at me and talk to me differently than, than they would otherwise. And, you know, just this, those relationships, I, I think, are closer more trusting just because I have that, that credential and that background. Absolutely. I mean, you're able to exchange, there's a currency there that, that you both understand. And so you're, there's a little more equality in that conversation for sure, which is an important one. And that's, that should be a relationship that every CISO has. I'd argue that if you're not meeting in a semi-regular manner with inside counsel, you're probably not at the right level. If you're not you don't have that exchange and, and you've just benefited your own because you put in the effort, the sweat equity to, uh, to be on the same level in many ways, right? So you're the first one I've encountered, maybe the second CISO that, that has a JD, actually the second, you're the second. So you know, I, I've only ever met maybe, you know, five or 10 um, over, over the last decade. And I think it's becoming more common for, for, for CISOs to have MBAs. But I, I think it's interesting to see a JD out there um, even if they're not technical, you know, I, I think they can help navigate those, those relationships in a different way, pr particularly for for folks who have a, a mature technology practice. And, they, you know, they really need to make that bridge to be less technology focused and be you know, more business focused. So one of the questions I like to ask of every guest is 
around advice, and it's really a mentoring question, but it's what advice in general? We've learned a little bit about where you've worked and what you've done for some of your studies and even some of the things you've done, like being an author. But what advice would you give, would present day George give maybe 25-year-old George? Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, don't go to law school. <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, I, I, I think just the, the idea that your career is a process. And I didn't start out my career with this as necessarily a goal. But, you know, when I left, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I kind of got lucky and got a really great corporate gig at, at uh, AT&T. And I, I left to go, you know, jumped around at a couple startups. And then I, you know, went to law school and had these, you know, interesting experiences. And what, what I found today is that, you know, while I've, you know, been at SMU a long time, I've, I've also held a lot of roles. And I think that variety of experiences is what helps prepare you when you get to a leadership level um, to, to, to be prepared and to kind of have gone through different trials or challenges, not even necessarily just in technology. I would say embrace that. You know, if, if anything, I would have embraced, you know, a, more, a, a larger variety of challenges and connected with a, a larger variety of people. I think that's one of the things that I kind of had to purposefully change is, you know, when I got into cybersecurity, it was everybody played their cards close to the best. And it was, you know, it was all secrets. And, you know, I mean, and I think that, that makes sense, you know, because a lot of folks in cybersecurity come from a law enforcement or military background, and we're taught that loose lips sink ships. But, you know, for, for me, the, you know, the biggest thing has been, you know, connecting with people and understanding them and building relationships, you know, cybersecurity is a team sport. So I would have just started that sooner. And, you know, kind of worked with different folks outside of my domain or my area to see what they were doing and, and kind of go through those challenges with them. Right. So maybe push more, take more risks, but also for yourself and maybe for others, you know, work on pushing against that more standoffish trend. I think we're finally breaking out of that. I still see it in some circles where there's sort of this anti-sharing, this sort of paranoia. Uh, you know, I think we we have a lot to learn. I think our leadership structure and in information security has suffered greatly. So while we were maybe doing trying to do a good job of being secure, which we ultimately failed at, we did a poor job of developing leaders, like true leaders. We have lots of people we can look up to that are maybe technicians and and maybe even many more that are certainly opinionated about technology and security, but that's one of the sort of one of the reasons why we do this podcast is to explore this this concept of of life and career and leadership and what effect does that have and how do we build some of that body of knowledge maybe not all of it but maybe a little piece of it so that's one of the things i'm most sort of proud of when i see in the security industry as a whole as we begin to mature a bit is a little more of that openness uh and ultimately maybe friendliness one of my very first jobs out of college uh, was at a call center. And I, I remember going through tr their, their training program. And, you know, the, one of the first things I learned, you know, were the acronyms PEBCAC and ID10T. And that is hard to, to break, right? You know, PEBCAC, you know, for, for those who haven't heard it is, you know, the problem exists between the keyboard and the chair, right? You know, the pro right. problem is the person. And then, you know, ID10T is, you know, elite speak for, for an idiot. So, between those two things, 
you know, I, I think maybe even outside of cybersecurity and technology in general, if you view, you know, people as the problem, um, you're, you're not going to, you know, develop a, a you know, a, a leadership mindset, you're, you know, because, right, you know, you're, you know, as a leader, you're, you're a coach of people, you, you need to relate to them, you need to motivate them, connect with them. And if, if you believe that they're the problem, right, there's this thing in psychology called the Pygmalion effect, right? Um, you know, if you believe someone is a problem, you know, they're going to be a problem. You know, the, the study they, that, that was done in, in the 60s were with elementary school children, and they told the teachers that half of the students were, were you know, <laughs> low performing, and the other half were high performing, but they lied to the teachers and, and they actually switched them. So right. at the end of the year, the teachers who thought these high-performing kids who were actually low-performing, they turned those kids into high-performers. Um, and conversely, they, they turned the, high-performing, the, the previously high-performing kids into low-performers. And, you know, in a, in a way, I think one of, one of the, the failures of cybersecurity leadership today is, you know, if we really do believe people are the problem, we're making people the problem. If we, if we believed instead that people were the solution, we're creating a much different environment uh, and, and, you know, we'd have the possibility of success. I completely agree. I think that we have this as an issue, a mindset and a leadership problem there. And we're also too quick. If, if the excuse is, is that everyone is dumb, that's usually, I, I was going to say ignorant, but that let's, let's say everyone's just like, oh, well, let's make fun of them. They're just dumb. They're going to do dumb things. It also removes the opportunity for us being the technician or the security person uh, to try to put in the extra effort to make it better, right? There's sort of two things. There's the, there's this, Pygmalion or the Rosenthal effect, as some would call it, there's that that we can work on, which is absolutely the case if you believe that path. But there's also whatever effort you put into that, I think there needs to be equal effort in the technicians to reevaluate the mess that they've made on the back end. Right, right. And so that I often see this sort of inequality where people uh, want to, hey, these people are dumb, they failed the test. We fired this guy because he failed, he, you know, because he's pat, he hasn't passed it so many times. So we're going to get excited and laugh about that. I, I see that. I see it in, in big corporations and small. But we're not going to put any similar effort. There's no risk of getting fired uh, because the, you know, we have silly processes that allow things through that they shouldn't. Or there's no pressure put on the foolish business process uh, or the misconfiguration uh, or the lack of diligence of testing. No one ever goes there. Uh, it's always you know, the, the, the bag is being left, being held by, by kind of the, the end consumer. And that I have a real issue with. I, I talk about this in, in, in the, the, the book that's, that's coming out soon. Um, you know, and it, it's, this isn't a problem necessarily that's, you know, isolated to cybersecurity. I talk about, uh, you know, Robert Ebling, who was the engineer at NASA who warned them that the O-rings were going to fail on the space shuttle Challenger. And he tells the story, you know, he was driving his daughter to, to see the launch and he was telling his daughter, the, all of these astronauts are going to die. And they did. And he asked for help. You know, there was a mess to, to clean up, but he was ignored because he said something. And I think if people are worried about, you know, perception and it's, it's so difficult, you know, it's the boy who cried wolf, right? You don't want to be the guy as a CISO or a technologist or whoever 
that that is is always being the one that says the sky is falling. So how do you navigate relationships when it's your job to say the sky is falling all the time? I think that takes a lot of nuance. That takes a lot of relationship building. It takes a lot of trust, uh, both of you and in you. And you know that that's that's a that's a really tightrope to navigate. From my perspective, the failure there is the leadership above him not listening. There was a manager or a director or someone above him that could have acted on that and said, hey, look, this person has dedicated their life to being a great engineer, and they're telling us this is going to fail. The crazy thing is he had three managers uh, that, that <laughs> you know, and, you know, it was, it was I mean, uh, he was a contractor, right? So, you know, again, thinking about that relationship, they were telling NASA something that NASA didn't want to hear, and they didn't want to lose the contract. and so. His three managers said, mm, you're not going to be on this conference call. One of the managers realized what he was saying was legit and, you know, actually didn't show up for the conference call. The other two said, no, you can go ahead and do that. So, you know, it, it, yeah, it's, you know, th- those kinds of business challenges are, are, are real. And, and one of the reasons I wrote the book was to, to, to help give people some context for, for maybe how to navigate those kinds of tricky conversations. Yeah, let's take a step back. So you have authored a book. It's about to be released. I was able to get an advanced copy, which I thank you very much for that. Uh, if you would tell us, so you're giving these examples. You are, one of the things I enjoy about it, I'll say before you get into kind of the title and, and maybe some of the motivation and when it's going to be released, uh, is I think for a leader, for whether you're technical or non-technical, there are both ties in this book into human psychology and history that are incredibly relevant that help me, I'll say personally, and I think would help many others, to describe these ideas about sort of the failed security state and and wrong thinking to others. So you can tell a story and it helps with the translation of security. So I very much appreciate that. Tell us if you would. So give us the title of the book and let us know when it's going to be out and how people, if they're interested, can give it a look. So the, the book is called Well Aware. The subtitle is Master the Nine Cybersecurity Habits to Protect Your Future. <laughs> and really, I wrote the book. I had this idea. I wanted to build a bridge between CISO cybersecurity professionals who are trying to have difficult conversations with the rest of the, the business, executives, accountants. Um, you know, sales leaders, what, what, what have you, whatever, whatever it is in your organizations. And we need to have some common ground. And, you know, those other, other professions, they all have this professional development track. So they all read all kinds of uh, leadership style books. So really, you know, whether it's Good to Gray, whether it's, you know, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits, you know, that's part of their professional development. But there's not one out there that's that's approachable uh, for a non-technical person that's, that's on cybersecurity. So my, my hope was to, to write a book that followed the, that paradigm. Um, but part of that is, you know, telling stories and, and making it relatable. But the, the other part of it is in cybersecurity, we focus on the negative, right? We, we want to we, we know when, when something goes wrong, you know, what they did wrong so that we can avoid it, which makes total sense. But that only helps us avoid things. That doesn't help us proactively, you know, do different things. So, you know, w- what I did instead is I focused on stories of successful leaders who've implemented good things in, in, in their uh, environments. 
So, uh, you know, I tell the story, uh, you know, about uh, the CEO of the Girl Scouts uh, who built the, the Cyber Merit Badge program. And that kind of leads into the conversation of the habit of literacy. And I, re- I really do believe that, you know, to make a difference in cybersecurity, you know, there, there are all these frameworks and compliance guidelines, but, you know, what we need to focus on are individuals' tiny habits. Um, and those small changes can make a huge difference, uh, uh, you know, when, when you think about all the different things we do in cybersecurity. No question, especially when many of these habits or behaviors could help, uh, if changed, could help detect or maybe disrupt some form of attack, which leads to either missed opportunity or even, you know, if you look at the IP theft that we have uh, from America, if you look at the espionage, if you look at the organizations that are left really without without ability to respond, like with ransomware we've seen, right? And it's if you add, and I think that's the point you make in the book, even if we made that 10, 20, or 30% better, what is that net out to be, right? What's the, what's the, what's the effect on our GDP, <laughs> you know, what with that? I think that difference-making ability is, is huge. And gosh, when, when you think about, you know, just the, the scope of the problem, how else are we going to make a difference? The way that I came up with the nine habits, you know, I, 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 it sounded like you were kind of leading into this, but you know, I started thinking about the cyber kill chain. And, you know, again, how do I, how do I teach my users as a CISO how to, you know, how to have that, you know, how to disrupt the kill chain? And, you know, I, I, you know, there are seven steps in the kill chain. And I didn't want to just write a book like, okay, the nine habits, great. You know, you, you just invented that. But what I, what I really did is I took all of the advice that we give to individuals whether it's, you know, not writing their keyboard, you know, their, uh, their password down and hiding it under their keyboard or, you know, all, all of the little bits of advice. And I started to kind of try and align them into, you know, constellations, if you will, of, of, of different habits to, to kind of, you know, focus each one on maybe disrupting a step of the kill chain. That's really where, where it came from is distilling down, you know, hundreds and hundreds. I've got this giant spreadsheet of all of the advice that we give and I add to it every time I you know, hear somebody say, you know, give a, give a new tip or, or, or a bit of advice for folks. But I think all of those can be, you know, distilled down into, you know, these categories or constellations. And if we, if we can teach people the, the constellations first and have a framework for them to understand, that will empower them to do those smaller habits more successfully. Okay. So if you would tell us what are the nine habits and then which one of the nine is your favorite? <laughs> so the, the the habits are are you know we we start with literacy, right? You have to have a foundation, and I think literacy is the foundation. And literacy doesn't mean what you think it means. By the way, you know it doesn't mean that you know everything. It just means that you are able to recognize the words on the page. And from there, you go to skepticism. You know, don't believe everything you read. Vigilance, secrecy, culture, diligence, community, uh, mirroring, and then deception is is the final one. And I think. Maybe deception is probably the, the most challenging to, to implement. But for, for me, gosh, I, I really do think my, my favorite of the nine habits is culture, because that, that's, that, that's really the heart of, of, of what we're trying to do is, you know, you, you as an individual can build habits, but collectively where we have the most impact is building a culture around cybersecurity. And that's often, you know, what we're expected to do as CISOs is, is build a cybersecure culture, but you, you, you don't build culture in a vacuum. It's really everyone working together, both at a leadership level, top down, as well as 
the grassroots from from the bottom up. And I, I think you know you you've, you've got to kind of start to coordinate our, our habits together. And uh, you know everybody at you know SMU does X, Y, or Z to, uh, to 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 know that's what you know Mustangs do. I mean, SMU's the the our mascot's the Mustang. You know, one of the things I, I think I like under uh, vigilance is you, know, you even talk about the relationship of it back to I mentioned earlier of meditation. So what is the what is the cost of sort of the the situation you're in when you're in a state of fear? And I've seen this firsthand when people are managing breaches and they're tired and they're they're sleep deprived and they're under stress. You see all these negative behaviors begin to come out, uh, and if not a negative behavior, uh, at least at minimum mistakes. And I really think that's one of my favorite things to see. And, and I want to just cite it again, where you know the improvement of awareness. I've, I have an underline here in front of me: awareness, concentration, and decision making. As as leaders, we need to make sure, not only as leaders, but also for all of us, to know that if there's a, a stressful situation, understand the bits that'll that'll happen. You know, and, and you even talk about. Uh, our own American Revolutionary War and and what that means and you know don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes and and that's a as you note a very personal thing and when we see certain imagery even how that can bypass our eyes effectively and go straight to our minds there's elements that happen in the human mind so for anyone who's interested in that these sorts of bits that tie into security and the history of it I really highly recommend giving it a look and jumping into it but the the element of needing to have better awareness, concentration, and decision making, and understanding that when your team is stressed, that those things are important. I think that's so important, particularly right now with with COVID. I mean, we're experiencing a, you know a, a five, six, seven month long uh, experiment into how stressed people can get. <laughs> so you know, I mean, I, I think we know today that you know our teams are not performing the way they were a year ago. Whether it's you know family stress, whether it's concern about losing your job or being furloughed, whether it's you know you know having kids at home that that you know don't have childcare uh, options that they would have otherwise. I mean you know so we know you know that's that's a challenge, and and maybe that's you know one of the reasons why you know fishing is up by two thousand or three thousand percent or whatever the number is now, um, because it's it, you know they they know that we're more vulnerable and their their campaigns are being more effective. So yeah, I mean, knowing knowing that um, helps you prepare differently and helps you understand the the challenges that that everyone's facing and hopefully you know have more empathy for for your teams. Could not agree more. Um, you know, early reports is you know some some were excited in the business world because now uh, this idea that we have to all get together in order to be successful is is a little bit debunked. Some are even also saying that productivity is up somewhere between 40 and 50%. What people are not talking about, well, some are just now starting in some circles is what's the cost, at what cost, and how long does this go on? You know, there's no, there's no vacation. Uh, there's no clear uh, delineation between the beginning and end of a workday. There's fewer separations between personal and work, even if it's from a device perspective or from a habit perspective. And so these types of ideas become even more important to educate on, uh, I believe. And so, yeah, you're, you're, the alignment of these points and now today with COVID is, is completely correct. I would like, if you would, we could transition into one of the things we talked about is 
fishing in general, and you had done some research on this, specifically around is there a time of day that's better for a successful fish? Tell us about that. As a CISO, you know, you, you, you start to get further and further away from the technology that you, that you used to be so steeped in. And, you know, I'm holding on to fishing as, as, as the one thing that, that I still kind of, you know, do a deep dive into the weeds. So, you know, I don't get into Cali and I'm, you know, I'm not into, you know, pen testing anymore, although I kind of still teach it a little bit. So I've actually sent over 20,000 phishing messages personally to my staff. And I, I, I thought, well, I'm doing a pretty good job. Uh, you know, these simulated phishing messages, when we started out, we were at, uh, you know, we, we had 40% of our users clicking the links. And, you know, we got that down to, to around 3%. It took a couple of years um, and we, we've kind of held it down. And, you know, I, I, I got permission to start fishing my students. Um, and, you know, I, it was same, same conversation. There, there was a lot of compromised student accounts. And now we're, we're, we're helping them recognize phishing better. Um, I've had students, you know, create memes about my, my campaigns, which is awesome. I love seeing those. <laughs> so... What I've learned, you know, okay, well, you know, certain campaigns are, are good and, you know, certain campaigns are challenging for users to, to spot. But, you know, I, I've, I've used different tools and, and you know, o- over time, I've started, you know, as, as again, write, writing the book, I, I've started looking at the research into psychology and, you know, neuroscience. And, and you know, people think that, um, you know, your, 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 you know, your, your circadian rhythms uh, make it, make certain types of activity more efficient at different times of the day. So during the morning, your analytical abilities are, are high. And in the afternoons, they, they kind of trail off and, and, and there are other things that, uh, that, that improve. So, you know, it's not like, you know, you're, you're just not functional in the afternoons. But I've always heard this, this anecdotal evidence in the security community that, oh, you know, t- you know, hackers at the end of the day, you know, four o'clock, you know, send campaigns because, you know, that's when users are most tired. And, you know, maybe that's true, maybe not. But uh, what the psychology research actually says is users are better at analytical uh, decisions during you know, the morning, and that trails off after, after lunch. So I thought, well, okay, if that's true, maybe I can look at my data to figure out whether, whether I was seeing that as a pattern and I just wasn't looking at the pattern. So you know, thankfully, I'd saved you know, my five years of, of, of data. Um, and as it turns out, users are on the order of magnitude uh, about 10 times more likely to click on my simulated phishing messages in the afternoon. <laughs> right. I, I mean, as an order of magnitude, 10 times is a big deal. 10 times can, can, can really help, help us you know, think about the problem differently if, if, if we only knew that that was the scope of the, uh, of, of the issue. So I, I kind of dug a little further. And as, actually, as it turns out, we really encourage our users to report any simulated phishing or, or regular phishing. And so I, uh, well, how, would, how would I prove that if, if that were the case? Well, I looked at all of our users' uh, help desk tickets that we create based on those reports. And again, over, over the last several years, we found that it's much more likely for users to report a phishing message in the morning than it, than it was in the afternoon, right? Again, your analytical abilities are, in, are, are kind of at their peak in the morning. So that makes sense. Yeah, let me have you pause right there. Is there, so at, at the conclusion of this, do you think that training should potentially represent this? Meaning, do you think people should be told this? And should this should the training, your organization, maybe maybe it has been changed, but for others that are that are listening, for the the new CISO someplace else, or the director of security someplace else that's listening to the show, 
if you believe this to be true, and I, I believe it to be because you have the evidence to show, does our security training need to highlight this? Absolutely. First, I will say the bad guys know this already, right? Whether they knew why it was the, the case or not, one of the reasons I think they target the afternoon is because it's more successful. But I think if, if, if we incorporate in, into our training, our users you know, can do something about it. Part of you know, what, what, what do the GI Joes say, right? Knowing is half the battle. I mean, you can function differently knowing that you're more vulnerable in the afternoon. And you know, maybe that's just an awareness, or maybe you can actually rearrange your day so that you know, you're, you're, you know, you're more likely to read and, and respond to emails in the morning than you are in the afternoon. Or, um, you know, I, I have a, a technique that, that I've developed that, that I share in the book as well. I call it slow down and frown, you know, in part just because it rhymes. <laughs> but, you know, part of the uh, psychology research is that you might have heard the, the, the advice that smiling for 30 seconds will release endorphins into your brain and you can kind of trick yourself into being happy. Right. Um, but the opposite's also true, right? If you frown for 30 seconds, your brain also releases chemicals that make you more vigilant. And, you know, in the, in the studies that there's not been one, I haven't set a bunch of users down in a, in a you know, lab to, to, ex, you know, to, to experiment with this. But in other, you know, uh, settings, um, they think they've increased vigilance by 20 or 30% just by frowning. So if you can frown while you're reading your emails, <laughs> and if that can really have an impact of, of you know, 20 or 30% less uh, phishing, you know, clicks, um, that, that, that makes a, an incredible difference. Oh my, I mean, it's, it's almost revolutionary. It doesn't involve technology. It's just frowning. I'm interested in pushing on this a little bit more, uh, especially as it relates to culture and really two types of culture. One is the culture of the company itself, meaning what's the expectation when you receive an email and what should you be doing with it at what time of the day? And then the other is culture, thinking like international culture, so the, the norms of certain people around the world. Um, I'd like to start with, with culture in general. So um, it's tough to change, as you've mentioned before, but from, again, from a leadership perspective, from a training perspective, have you done any assessment or do you have an opinion? You know, many organizations, there's an expectation if you get an email at 8 p.m., from your boss, it's that you should reply, that you need to work on it, right? That there's this never-ending work day that we're into, especially now with, with the pandemic. What are your, what's your thought on that type of culture? And do you have any observations or thoughts there? What we know is that hackers, you know, one of the techniques they use is to put additional time pressure on you to respond to a message, right? That's, that's one of the, the pressures to get you to click without thinking. And so I think if you're in an environment where you're expected to respond to a, a text message or an email within five minutes at 2 a.m., there's a lot less room for you, I think, to be vigilant, to have a good response if a bad guy comes through. And, you know, there was a story, you know, one of our uh, folks at SMU responded to a, one of the gift card scams. Right. And, you know, what we found after we did the interview with her was her boss, a tenured faculty member, was, was kind of a yeller, right? And so, you know, she knew that the consequences of, of, of clicking that phishing link and, and giving away a couple hundred dollars in gift cards were going to be less than the consequences of potentially, you know, maybe, you know, she, I mean, and she said she knew that this was probably a, fish, a phishing, a scam or whatever. You know, she also knew that even if it's a 1% chance that this person, you know, was 
was really that that person, uh, her her boss, then the consequences of living with that, even if it was just a small percent, would have been devastating to her for months. She wanted to avoid that, right? So if if you know that kind of internal corporate culture, right? How do you measure whether you know a boss likes to yell or whether uh, you know you uh, whether you're expected to respond to e- you know to emails within five minutes? I think I think knowing those things, in addition to, for a lot of us, we have global cultures, right? You know, we're, we're global companies, so maybe in the Asia Pacific, you know, area, they have a culture of not questioning their bosses, whereas in other cultures, it's it's you know it, it's acceptable to to, to challenge or, or you know or even expected to challenge a boss. And you've got all of those cultures mixed into your own corporate culture, helping people know that it's okay and safe to learn. And creating that environment is is, is incredibly important. Um, one of the things I do with my my simulated phishing campaigns is I make sure that everybody knows that I have rules uh, that I follow, and I publish those rules to in, in my security newsletter. But I don't respond to requests from from you know supervisors or anyone to say you know who who clicked on that simulated phishing message so I can fire them because if I create the environment where everybody's afraid. Then my my simulating phishing campaigns aren't going to be as successful as they otherwise would be. So that's an interesting point. I, I think that it's one that many should learn from. We're getting this has gone by. I could talk all day about this stuff. I've got one kind of thing I want to cover with you. Actually, two more. You're talking about culture. You and I spoke about a culture audit, and what is that? And you had some some points, and I think an astonishing figure that goes along with that. So we've been talking about really having a bad boss or bad culture. What is a culture audit? And tell us about that. So as, as a concept, there's a leadership expert out there. His name is Peter Drucker. And he's got this quote that, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. That applies to all business. He's, he's telling all of his, uh, his, his clients this. And what it means is, you know, as, as, a, as an, exec, an executive, right, I'll, I'll come in you know, whoever you are, you know, that you're hired to come up with this awesome strategy and, you know, get it going. And everyone fails at that because they, they don't look at culture. They don't try and change the culture to integrate that with your strategy so that they're, you know, that they're seamless. And so I thought, okay, well, well how would I test that? If, if culture eats strategy for breakfast, probably culture eats cybersecurity for breakfast too. And so, you know, I, I, I took the list of all the companies that were breached in, I think, 2018. And I, I looked at their Glassdoor ratings. So on Glassdoor, if you're not familiar, you you can you know you can rate your company one to five stars, and you know current employees can rate it, or uh, former employees can rate it. And so I, I kind of compiled all of the Glassdoor ratings for for all of these companies that that had been breached in in, in 2018. And what I found was that it was you know statistically three times more likely for a company to have been breached if they had a lower than average culture score on Glassdoor. So again, this is across every industry. This is across, you know, small companies, large companies, doesn't matter what technology that they use, which so having an indicator of, of culture of a 3x increase, I mean, that, that's remarkable. Yeah, I am blown away by that. I think that's an amazing figure. Uh, I think you could do a, a TED talk on this subject, if time allows. I think it's the concept of breach and culture uh, is phenomenal. So that that's a gem. I was really impressed by that. I would take it to the, to the I mean, you mentioned culture audit. 
I'd love to take that to the next level. And, you know, we, I've done internal assessments. I've got like a 50 question questionnaire that we've, we've used to kind of measure our own internal cultures. And I talk about other folks that are, that are doing similar things with, with like diversity in, in terms of culture of diversity in your organizations, because the research that, that's out there says that, you know, culture, you know, companies that are, have a greater diversity are more successful. They're more profitable than other companies out there. So again, I, I try not to take cybersecurity in a vacuum for one, because, you know, when, when you're talking to executives or other folks, they don't want to just hear about cybersecurity, right? They, they, they want to hear about how to be more successful and more profitable. Right. But at the same time, we have to kind of connect with our organizations and, and understand, you know, from department to department or from country to country, how do those things differ? And, you know, how do you, I mean, I, I don't think you can, you can change something without being able to measure it and to, to focus on it and, and to know, you know, over time there is change, you know, whether it's good or bad. And, and hopefully we can help make a difference, particularly, you know, where, when it comes to cybersecurity. I've got one final question for you, um, George, kind of pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO, what does being, in your opinion, what does being a new CISO mean to you? I really think that as a new C- CISO, I think the key to success is building relationships, connecting with people. I, I, you know, th- throughout the course of, of my career, at all levels of, of security, it's other people who save my bacon you know, time and time again. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm a smart guy, you know, as, as are, you know, probably every new CISO. Being smart isn't, isn't enough. You have to have a team. And I've got a small team here at SMU. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, some people, you know, take that as, you know, well, I have to have a team of 100 people or, or what have you. But one of the things I, I, I heard first, you know, probably when I was a kid was security is everybody's job. Mm-hmm. That means that I don't have five or 10 people on my team. That means that I have 2,500 people on my team, you know, every employee at SMU or maybe even every student. And viewing that differently, you know, changes the job. And you've got to believe that people are the solution. That's an excellent answer. George, thank you so much for being a guest. And for those listening, look for George's book, Well Aware, Master the Nine Cybersecurity Habits to Protect Your Future. Thank you so much, George. Thank you, Steve. It was great being here. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.